Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you're listening. You're listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This is episode 33 of The Shift. It's being recorded on April 12, 2018. If you like what you're listening to, please think about becoming a patron. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. Join us on Facebook for my news feed at The Shift with Doug McKenty, on Twitter at McKenty, or find out more and check out all my archives on my website. That's theshiftnow.com. My guest on the show today is Dwayne Hayes, author of the blog From Out of the Hayes. Though Dwayne has always been open-minded and critical of official narratives, he began to seriously question the mainstream after noticing the many contradictions apparent in the coverage of the 9-11 tragedy. Starting his career in 2000 as an investment advisor and insurance agent, he slowly became more disillusioned with the corporate system and started working as a carpenter in 2004. After being introduced to the concept of the Trivium, the ancient Roman foundation for what is now considered a classical education, Duane learned to apply critical thinking skills to the art of rhetoric, the aspect of the Trivium which synthesizes grammar and logic into long-form arguments and complex concepts. From Out of the Haze is Duane's attempt to dispute mainstream narratives by utilizing Trivium methodology to expose the lies and manipulation behind mainstream journalism and education. His essays focus on the ways the elite class, through tax-exempt foundations, think tanks, and other political organizations, manipulate cultural evolution through propaganda and educational systems designed to brainwash the masses, rather than allowing individuals to develop critical thinking skills, utilizing systems like the Trivium. In his essays, Duane explains how the bulk of humankind is participating in a grand scientific experiment, imposed by a few wealthy elites engaging in a grand project of social engineering. Dwayne, through his blog, is helping to reawaken our critical faculties so we can once again feel empowered to make choices for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Find his blog at DwayneHayes28.Wixate.com. And thank you, Dwayne, for agreeing to be on the program, and thank you for helping to make the shift. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on. Yeah, for sure. I first noticed you on Twitter, and you the, the uh, primary sources that you were tweeting were so impressive to me that I had to go and check out the rest of your blog. Uh, and of course, I found a wealth of information there that is so important. I've been waiting to have this discussion with somebody, and you were the perfect person. So thanks again for coming on. Awesome. Great. Thanks. So we can kick it in by just talking about social engineering in general, uh, its history, and what's going on right now. I think a lot of people have a hard time. I mean, this is sort of the essence of what they call conspiracy theory, right? And people just have a hard time believing that there's this cabal of evil, wealthy people that have such control. Uh, The more you look into it, the more you start to realize that this, I mean, you can see it. You can see it in the history. You can look it up. You can find out how they're doing it. You've done this work. What have you found? Well, I mean, it's it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's it's it uh, it's in, in everything that we do. And uh, I remember when I first started looking into it, people I was often called a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more and more I started looking into it, I found actual primary citations and and the books that in which that they had actually admitted all of this from the Stanford Research Institute, which we're going to talk about in a bit, to the Rockefellers, all of their own literature, all of their own words, they all admit it. So we're, we're moving now beyond conspiracy theory into conspiracy fact. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I'm excited to be here 
I'm glad that uh, you've given me an opportunity to, or a place to sort of um, disseminate all of this information to people. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, what did you discover as you were looking into this? Um, and what made you recognize how manipulative it actually is? I mean, you know, I think most people think, well, they go to school. You know, the interesting, the most interesting thing to me about about the school system is that people in their communities and their school boards, they don't have the opportunity to be able to really change the curriculum. And then every once in a while, Congress comes out with, uh, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to look at the curriculum, we're going to change it, but it's always the executive branch and it's always kind of behind closed doors, people on the national level talking about it. And so, you know, the average family doesn't get to decide what their children learn in school. I mean, how crazy is that? Yeah, and that's all. That all happened at the turn of the century, and that was all. You know, John D. Rockefeller and the foundations, and using their money and leveraging uh, universities and and schools with the use of money to um, influence everybody. And and really, schooling is a an indoctrination center. But um, so I have a presentation. I kind of sort of want to um, start at, with a a quote from Changing Images of Man. So mm -hmm. that was a, a Stanford Research Institute study that was published in um, 1974, I think the first time, and then in 83. And so this kind of explains where this social engineering comes from, because a lot of people think maybe that it's um, from, like, it's uh, influenced by money, but it's actually... So it's it's it has to do with information. So um, let me just start with this quote mm -hmm. from the Changing Images of Matt. It is significant that we have come to equate the rise of civilization in the old world with the emergence of the first literate societies in which small elitist groups hold the keys to a kind of esoteric knowledge, which gave them power over their fellow men. As far as we know, this first occurred in the Mesopotamian Valley around 3500 BC. Moreover, and possibly because this new type of knowledge could not be extended to the entire community, there developed abruptly at this time a clear distinction between governing and governed classes. So I use this quote to show that the disparities between class are primarily caused by an imbalance in information. Those who possess knowledge have an immense advantage over those who don't. Mm -hmm. And so these techniques have been around forever. There's nothing new under the sun, and while the devices have evolved and technology has advanced, the basic aspects of social engineering have barely changed because the human condition has never really changed. We essentially contain the same values and beliefs that we always have as humans. We still strive for happiness. We still strive to propagate. We still strive for social acceptance. So they play upon those, uh, those human emotions. So this quote also relates in a significant way to the history of the trivia method which we're going to talk about in a bit but for now it's like it's an important to establish that when we are talking about governors and the governed of classes or of any society social engineering is an integral de determining factor to its longevity and on a very basic level what we're really talking about is psychological manipulation Right. So the shaping of public opinion in order to achieve a consensus or a singularity out of the collective. 
So it's kind of social socialist, right? It's communist. And so this discussion will revolve around this one major principle, how this disparity of knowledge leads to the removal of individuality or free will. So it may, it's not so much about world domination through the use of money, which a lot of people think, or oil, but through the, the, through the collection of information and, and the occulting of information or the hiding of information and keeping that from the masses. So that's really where the trivium comes in handy is that it's, it's actually there ready for us to understand. And this, the trivium is one of the essential elements that they've kept hidden. So we'll see that as we go. It's, it was, um, it was eliminated from our education system in the mid 1850s, mm -hmm. but uh, we'll get to that. So, uh, this main driving force behind the, the um, progressive educational reform initiated by Rockefeller, by Carnegie and Ford in the early 1900s. But it's also the main driving force behind the removal of the trivium. It's the main driving force behind the changing images of man study. It's the main driving force behind the work of behaviorists like uh, B.F. Skinner, Edward Thorndike, or Wilhelm Wundt. And is actually the main guiding principle behind neo-Marxism postmodernism and the Fabian Society, even like the Communist Manifesto. And it also happens to be the plot of George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Right. Right? This is what they, they uh, sort of purport in these books, is this elimination of individuality and free will. You know, Dwayne, what amazes me is to see that academics willingly participate in this. I mean, I was looking at the changing images of man, and you see psychologists like B.F. Skinner who talk about, I mean, sort of like in Russia there was there was Pavlov, and people have heard about Pavlov's dog. I mean, these people right. are really treating human beings like, like, like yeah, like animals that can be trained. They're eliminating our free will. They're, the, the feeling of superiority that these people just presume upon themselves that they can make choices for the masses because we are not educated enough and then they go and they don't even educate us well enough to be able to make you know it's like they're creating this world where because as you're saying uh they only feed us some of the knowledge they have the rest of the knowledge and then they use it against us in these you know essentially these brainwashing techniques and it really is manipulative and you've got so many academics that participate in this because yeah. they feel, I think, they get their PhD and they feel superior to the rest of us. Well, and this, if the society as a whole were to find out these things, then they actually have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo because mm -hmm. they're heavily invested in it. Their whole life has been, uh, you know, the accumulation of their PhDs or, or whether they're managers, uh, teachers, like Noam Chomsky talks about it, that, 80% of the population is indoctrinated, but there's 20% of the population that are considered managers of society. So you're talking about uh, you're talking about doctors and educators, and they they have to be the most heavily indoctrinated. Right. So, and in fact, the, in, when you start looking into their literature, Doug, you see that they actually are calling us animals. Like Edward Thorndike actually considers us. I mean, we are animals, right? But he associates all of his work with rats and and dogs, Pavlov with dogs, and B.F. Mm -hmm. Skinner with pigeons and birds and, and all the other animals. They they equate humans the same way. And 
you know, when you look back on it and you look, it's, you know, it's, it's diabol diabolically genius because it, it is actually all working. These techniques of operant conditioning, they mm -hmm. all work. And so, you know, that's, um, it's a big reason why we are where we're at right now. I mean, I think people really need to realize that there are entire branches of science that are essentially dedicated to, like, I don't really know how to say it correctly, but like funneling the mass of humanity into some kind of a directive or some prime directive that these people are attempting to fulfill, which of course maintains the hierarchy and maintains the fact that they're on top of the hierarchy. I mean, this is what they're doing. They're essentially manufacturing a slave class that doesn't know enough to choose its own freedom. Right. And so all these subjects may seem disconnected, but they all tie together. Like mm -hmm. the goal of social engineering, any social engineering campaign is the removal of individuality, the removal of free will. So it's far easier to steer a society in a predetermined direction if public opinion is of the same mind. So, like, so to the ruling elites, individual thought is antithetical to the progress of society. And the most prominent device that they use for engineering society is propaganda or all these variants of propaganda. And you mm. see them in, today in society with, um, with uh, psychotropic drug use. I mean, this is all in, in changing images of man. We'll get to that uh, in a bit. But yeah, it's all there. And they actually contemplate all the uses in the, the uh, veracity. And they, they contemplate the veracity of it, but they never contemplate the efficacy or the, the ethical or morality, moral um, Right. Responsibilities. So you're right. They they really look down on society. Yeah, I, I understand that in some circles, um, they call the mass of humanity the profane. You know, they're right. they're on top of us, and we are the profane in their eyes, and we are just here to be manipulated for their benefit. And the useless eaters. Right. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, even Joseph Goebbels said that a good government can no more exist without good propaganda than good propaganda can exist without good government. Right. And so we see evidence of social engineering everywhere and all the way throughout history. Um, through the use of mythical stories, right? So on cave mm -hmm. walls of Neanderthal man, we see it all the way back, cuneiform language, the monuments and statues that commemorate great kings or warriors of Samaria. Uh the Behustun inscription in modern-day Iran, that's like one of the first ever examples of uh, propaganda or social engineering because it, it makes everybody of like mind, which is what they want. Mm -hmm. So like rock carvings of Petra, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, or even Michelangelo's David or his paintings on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, they're all examples of social engineering meant to withstand the sands of time. So... Uh, in fact, like very little evidence of these ancient civilizations exist outside of their propagandist creations. Right. Everything else gets uh, washed away over time, but what is preserved is the, the propaganda. A great example is the ancient Egyptian pyramids. So they, they were a project spanning generation. And so the need for unity of purpose um, was required to, to push everybody in a similar direction figuratively and literally, you know, towards a single goal over a long period of time. So obvious need for social engineering there. 
and in propaganda. Psychological mm -hmm. manipulation would have been critical in their creation and most likely encompassed all forms of social engineering, even violent coercion. So the same techniques that were used in ancient times, like cult of personality or celebrity or art or comedy or like even brute force or the illusion of force, music, legend and myth, they all help to promote uh, within a group feelings of hope, faith, camaraderie, pride, purpose, a sense of meaning and belonging to a larger whole. So they all serve to fulfill our needs and desires and those societies who were best able to translate these feelings were the most successful and uh, the longest standing civilizations. So during the Roman Empire, it was a uh, sense of extreme pride to be considered a Roman citizen. And this was consistently instilled into each individual, much the same as we exude national pride of our own countries today. Mm -hmm. So even today, when we look at it, all of these same things are there. Cult of personality, celeb the use of celebrity, art, comedy, brute force, the illusion of force, music, legend, and myth all play an integral role in the indoctrination of our modern Western society. So if we can just go through these a little bit and describe how they actually work. So art is used in various forms from still images and symbols like the classic wartime propaganda posters we're all familiar with mm -hmm. or like superheroes in, in comic books to modern day mimetic warfare like memes. And so especially motion picture films and television. Right. That came out in WikiLeaks in the Vault 7 release just about six months ago that the CIA had an entire meme warfare operation going on. Oh, really? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was Vault 7? Yep, it was in there. Yeah. So also in Vault 7, we found that they were actually listening to us through our computers and through our televisions, right? Even right. our laptops. So it's a little crazy. So um, what was I talking about? Art? So another part is comedy. We see this being used even back in the day, right, with jesters. Mm -hmm. they, they fulfill the role just the same as uh, they're used today. There's like a large portion of our modern society who see nothing wrong with getting their news from uh, primetime comedians like Stephen Colbert or John Oliver or Jimmy Kimmel or like Seth Meyers. These guys masquerade as legitimate news sources when all they really are is fulfilling the traditional role of the jester. Mm-hmm. So there, there may be truth in every joke, but there's no direct path from comedy to logic. So, um, also music. Music does an exceptional job in placating the public in, in much the same way a drug would. Most people really think of music, they don't think of music in this way, right? It's like we, we grow up sure. in society and music is just there. We find the music that we like, whether it's country or alternative or R&B or whatever, we never really think that it's it's a method of indoctrination, but it, it's it's one of the most prominent ones. Yeah, you wrote uh, that article where you deconstructed a, a single song and just discussed right. how it's used. I mean, why they have the 32-beat, 32-bar intros, why the songs are set up, why there's three-minute songs. You know, it's funny, it was reminding me of... Uh, 
One of my favorite albums is Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick. That's like right. 60 minutes of one long song. And like, they don't do that anymore. You know, they break it up. They're, they're three minutes long. They've got this specific formula. They do it at a certain level of Hertz, uh, which is outside the, the natural uh, cycles, the Hertz that we normally hear in the, the natural uh, cycles of nature. Uh, there are, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on behind the scenes that help to use music in this way. I mean, I think uh, it's been weaponized as so many things have. Um, you know, music could be a force for liberation for all of us. And instead, it's been co-opted, uh, again, as, as so many other things have. But like you're talking about with a lot of the arts, it's like they can co-opt these things that may be avenues for freedom of expression. And instead, they're used to you know, kind of force us all to fit this particular mold. Right. So nothing takes us away from our stresses of our daily lives as quickly or as effortlessly as music does. Mm -hmm. Right. But it also serves to implant subconscious, um, into our subconscious minds, the fads and fashions and fetishes that steer our beliefs and values. And then our beliefs and values steer our behavior and our behavior ultimately steer our society as a whole. So, Throughout history, we've seen many examples of leaders that, that um, upon assuming power, change the tunings of instruments or ban hmm. the use of certain keys or tunings. Right. Like Tsar Alexander and the French government in the early 1800s. And again, Joseph Goebbels in the 1930s all advocated for um, comprehensive changes to musical tunings. I think Goebbels wanted standard A440, which we have now, but I'm not sure if that's like across the board but i know that there's been instances when they've actually had to change all the wood instruments because uh somebody's gained power and they they only wanted music to be played in certain keys so moving on to the use of mythological story as a device to control society mm -hmm. Uh, in ancient times, mythological stories involving ancient gods and demons helped to maintain order within society. People would avoid certain unethical or destructive behavior for fear that they would anger the gods and be forced to endure retribution. And today, these mythological stories still dominate our entire lives. Right. So this is where we get into Joseph Campbell uh, with his hero with a thousand faces. And so if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I read about three weeks ago it's pretty amazing the nice just the um patterns that all mu all movies all stories basically follow the same pattern right? the mythical journey of the hero so these stories of myth and legend uh are far more effective now than they were around the campfires back in the day because we now have advanced technology like hollywood movies right uh, television so we all watch situational comedies, sitcoms, um, mainstream outlets, even religion, or especially early in a child's life with like nursery rhymes, fables, and cartoons. They all follow the same sort of pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just uh, just before we get too far beyond it. I was so disappointed to find out that uh, Joseph Campbell had engaged in. Uh, the whole, the work that put together the changing images of man, because this is obviously a book describing how, you know, academics and 
elite foundations can take control of the image of man, if you will, and socially engineer the kind of image that these people want to impose on us. And then, you know, unsurprisingly, people like B.F. Skinner are working on this project, who's this psychologist that's talking about operant conditioning, training us like dogs. But then to see Joseph Campbell in with the same group, working with people like B.F. Skinner, it was just a disappointment for me because I, like you, you know, you enjoy, uh, again, I, I don't know. You know, what's interesting is all the things that you mention or many of the things that you mention can be tools for liberation. I think that's why the elite class in this hierarchical, patriarchal culture that we live in, they want to take control of these things and then weaponize them in this way so they can use them to manipulate us into being subservient rather than using them as tools. That mythology... Perhaps, I mean, you know, a storytelling, these stories about the heroes. I mean, it's amazing how subtle you just have to twist them from being a story about a human being who liberates themselves from the hierarchy into someone who's working for the hierarchy and praising, you know, what, whatever it is, praising the nation state or praising the leader or praising the next, the current war or the next war that's about to happen, you know? Yeah. But I'm not sure how and where... Joseph Campbell fits in there if he was sort of ignorant of the whole overall scheme. Mm -hmm. But I think he was probably flattered to be included in those kind of um, things because it was a, you know, it involved a lot of famous people. Right. It, it's really interesting to me. I've, I've had this, I'm sure you've, you've heard some of the, the uh, conversations um, about Terrence McKenna as well. Another, uh, another intellectual, another academic that d discusses, um, you know, utilizing psychedelics or cannabis for liberation purposes. But then, you know, you find out that maybe he was involved in some of these social engineering projects as well. Uh, it's just so, it's just so complicated to get into it. And I, I think these academics get into it exactly. I mean, first of all, their funding is often connected to these foundations. So if they're going to make a living, they kind of have to be involved. And I don't know. Second of all, it's just such a it's just such a normal thing to participate as an academic in these kinds of things. I don't think they're necessarily thinking of it in ethical terms. Like they don't realize that what they're doing, at least from my perspective, is, you know, is simply not right. People have the right to free will and they have a right to make choices for themselves and to start, you know, cro when you cross that line, I guess on that level, when you're in academia, um, maybe it's just difficult to understand when you've crossed that line and when you haven't. Yeah, I think people like Terrence McKenna or Joseph Campbell could very easily be just like the rest of us, not fully understanding the overall scheme. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I'm not, I'm not actually going to defend any of them because you know, their work has actually um, been detrimental to the progress of humanity in my eyes. But uh, mm -hmm. to me, like, I haven't ever been able to get to the bottom of their motivations. Like, I've got a couple of Terrence McKenna's books. Yeah. And so, but it's still open to debate whether or not he knew or to what degree he did understand what was going on. And then I would say at this point that he was, these guys are probably just useful dupes. Yeah, that's that's right. where I kind of go with it, too. You know, they have a certain area of expertise. Somebody from a prestigious foundation approaches them, say, hey, we've got this $100,000 grant. You know, will you work with us on this project? And they're like, sure. You know, why why wouldn't they? And they don't realize that they're actually starting to participate in this larger picture of social engineering that's going on. Right. So 
if you think of it in allegorical terms, like Plato's allegory of the cave, you're familiar mm -hmm. with that? So mm -hmm. uh, Plato talks about social engineering in that book. He talks about eugenics. He talks about the use of education to socially engineer. So it's like it's probably one of the first ever utopian novels. Right. So uh, within the pages of Republic, he talks about the role of eugenics, education, music, poetry, uh, as forms of persuasion. He actually calls it the art of persuasion. So he, he describes a group of prisoners who have been chained to the wall of a cave for their entire life, never once seeing the outside world. A group of ruling elites cast shadows upon the wall in which the prisoners mistake for reality. So Terence McKenna, Joseph Campbell, and uh, I would say that they could be easily uh, one of the prisoners. Sure. Shackled along with the rest of us, right? So, um, you know, they may even be, you start to think that, oh, hey, you know, this work that I've done has been on the fringe for so long, and now it's being accepted right. by the by the mainstream, and I'm getting involved in these projects with these big foundations, and they're just not realizing that what's actually happening is their work is getting co-opted for, for this larger goal. Yeah, and I would say and that, that, that. I've seen that happen so many times where a movement gets started, uh, and then it gets, I mean, the... I use the Tea Party example all the time. The Tea Party got started as you could even use Occupy Wall Street, though, or Black sure. Lives Matter. I mean, yeah. you know, um, the Tea Party starts as a audit the Federal Reserve organization, and now everybody thinks of it as some kind of far right part of the Republican Party. Which you know, that's the Koch brothers just came in, they spent a bunch of money, and they advertised it like that, and now nobody's talking about the Federal Reserve anymore. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot I could actually say about that. But um, to go back to the allegory, like mm -hmm. Socrates talks about how if society is to survive, these people that are trapped in the cave need to be free from captivity, pulled from the cave and dragged up the steep and rugged ascent towards the light of the truth so that they can see themselves in their true proper place as they truly are and not mere reflections in the water. Right. So this this is sort of the mission on my part is to educate people or at least give people the tools and, and the ability to see what's going on. I mean, I can't make everybody read books. I can't make them all, you know, get to a greater understanding. But I think if mm -hmm. we present them with like the Trivium and some of these uh primary source material, like Changing Images of Man, but even in um, not in um, fictional books like Brave New World or 1984, these are, you know, when you consider who the authors were, these both members of the Fabian Society, the Socialist Communist Fabian Society, mm -hmm. uh, you start looking at these books more as blueprints and not just somebody's um, overactive imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I want to touch on, because it's so interesting to imagine where all this is coming from. And so many people, I mean, this is a difficult concept for people to wrap their minds around. That's why I think it's easy for, you know, for the mainstream to just call it off as conspiracy theory. Right. But the, I think what we're really getting at and the heart of this, all of this social engineering is 
this idea that science is leading us to a higher place. And, right. um, and so many people believe in that science. I mean, heck, I wonder if you really went out there into the world and you asked people, um, you know, if science tells you that, um, like Marx called communism scientific socialism, it's the, the application of science to this large social experiment in order to create this utopian outcome. Right. Uh, and if you go to people and you say, hey, you know, if I can get a hundred professors together and they can figure out how to create this beautiful world by using science, will you follow them? You know, most of them are going to be like, oh, yeah, whatever they say, I'm going to do because the science is telling me that it's true. Right. You right. know, without thinking for a second that, well, I mean, science is a great tool, but everyone should be free to make their own choice based on, you know, their critical thinking capabilities, their application of, I mean, science is just a technique to me, but I think it's become almost like you're talking about like a mythology for so many right. that it's, it's almost, it's our, yeah, it's our common cultural mythology. And so many people are indoctrinated into it, that it's not just a technique. I mean, science in itself, the scientific method, this is similar to the trivium, what, you know, what we're going to talk about a little bit later as the solution. Um, but instead of, engaging in science for themselves, you know, most people just say, oh, the scientists said this, so it must be true. And right. they're just listening to the authority figure and doing whatever they're told. Yeah, and that's scientism, right? So that's, that's a religious belief in, in, in something. That's having faith in something. And then mm -hmm. so when you talk about um, listening to experts, that's also faith. People aren't actually, you know, engaging in critical thinking or, or logical process to come to their own conclusions. They're actually just lazily depending on people, you know, and sometimes it's just a white coat, like a doctor. People will listen to a doctor simply because he's wearing a white coat, mm. actually known as the, the white coat syndrome. Right. <laughs> and so the one thing there is that they've made us so busy that we don't have time. And this is actually part of the game plan. Is that right. they, it says that in Changing Images of Man that they want an over-dependency put upon the expert so that now they, once everybody just takes faith, takes the word of a scientist or any sort of authority figure in society, once they just mm -hmm. take their word for something, they can, they can pretty much pass anything off. Can you believe that it just says that? Like in that book, it actually says, you know, we need to cultivate a world where people just listen to experts without thinking, <laughs> you know, without thinking for themselves. And yeah. I mean, as, as you've already mentioned, and we can go further into this also, not only are we too busy to develop critical thinking for ourselves, but for the 12 years that we're in school, this compulsory education system is designed to exactly not give us those critical thinking skills, so we we can't apply. In fact, if anything, it's just feeding us the same mainstream narrative that's you know been compiled in order to keep us down and not not raise us up. You know, not teach us uh, how to make good choices, how to be how to analyze issues critically, and how to rise ourselves, raise ourselves. You know, out of this uh, you know bottom of the pyramid hierarchical structure that we're all sort of forced into. And so this isn't the first time either. Like we were actually in a critical place. Like the last time this happened was in the 1400s with the Gutenberg press. Mm -hmm. So that 
it's very similar to today in that it allowed the dissemination of information between the masses, right? The ignorant masses or the, use, the uh, useless eaters. All of a sudden, this transfer of knowledge started to happen. And so I would imagine, like, the Gutenberg Press is probably one of the most significant technological advancements that we've ever seen. And so mm -hmm. along comes the internet and like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you know, decentralized. So you have the centralization. You're, you were talking about the Federal Reserve. That's all centralized. And so within music, we also see the standardization, but it's it's really the centralization. So whenever you, you hear standardization, it's really the centralization of everything and what is the main tenants mm -hmm. or the main planks of communist, the communist manifesto, but the centralization of everything. So actually, when you look around our society, you know, we've got federally owned agriculture, uh, the Federal Reserve. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, um, and you can go back to Roosevelt's New Deal, this is really where the implementation of, of those ideals of the socialist um, ideas were implemented into Western society. And so here again, we have reality right in front of us, but the majority of the population don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. So I remember one day working as a carpenter and somebody telling me that it's like, what do you think? So what do you think social assistance is? Like we live in a socialist state and I just couldn't believe them at first. But mm -hmm. once I started looking around and started reading literature, it was, it literally took my breath away. It was like, wow, you know, so when you trace it all back, it all goes back to, you know, just before our lifetime, just before this past generation, maybe just before the baby boomer generation, just the turn of the century, right? So just like, um, so this is actually like, it's a battle of enlightenment, right? So the Gutenberg press comes along and it, it, it allows the individual and the power of the individual to come to the forefront. So when Socrates talks about dragging them up the, the steep and rugged ascent to the light of the truth, mm -hmm. we see that this, this happens in the 1400s with the Gutenberg press. And so it's starting, it, it's this shift. It's the empowerment of the individual, the, the empowerment of free will. People start understanding that they don't have to depend on the church or the king to determine for themselves what they want to do in their life. So, um, I think this goes back to what you were talking about, about the occulted knowledge or the control of knowledge. I mean, this right. is how, and this is why, you know, I hope that people who are listening to this can really wake up to this. It's, it's not about, I mean, you know, th there's an aspect to power that is about having the most money, controlling all the resources, but you can't do any of that before you control the knowledge. And right. so before the Gutenberg press, you know, everybody just went to church and did what the priest told them. Right. I mean, if they learned how to read, the only way they could learn how to read is as a part of the, you know, as a part of the church, basically. And you're working for the Pope for the rest of your life. And you're the one that interprets the Bible for everyone else. And like you're talking about, that interpretation was given to you from the Pope. It was all standardized, centralized yep. knowledge. Sure. Then the Gutenberg press comes out and suddenly... 
that the Pope just can't control what you're learning about anymore. You know, all of a sudden there's pamphlets going on being passed around and the next thing you know, you've got the American Revolution, you know? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, the Protestant Reformation was a huge blow to the ruling power of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Mm -hmm. So then at the same time, you had the scientific revolution, which all of a sudden people were starting to determine for themselves what the stars meant and started coming up with their own ideas as opposed to mm -hmm. what the church was basically telling us, right? Right. And so... You had alternative Bibles, like so. You have the Protestant Bible being circulated across Europe, and so how does and the Pope at the time was Pope Gregory, the guy that we named the Gregorian calendar after. I think mm -hmm. it was one of the great Pope Gregories. I think it was uh, Pope Gregory the fifteenth, maybe. But so you have this growth in individuality and a threat to the status quo power of the church. And so how does he, so you get this counter revolution formed, right? And so how does Pope Gregory instill and begin to do this counter reformation, but through education, right? So he knows they all know that the, the best way to go and the first place to start is with the kids, with the, with the children. And so for the next 50 years after the Gutenberg press, probably even more than that, um, the Catholic church went on a, on a, on a, an attack of Protestant reformation and they started spreading Orthodox education throughout Europe. They started constructing seminaries all over the place, um, mm -hmm. and created like Roman seminaries for the education of priests. So you start seeing the same things, with Rockefeller, the same things that they did. They started building um, teachers' colleges at Columbia. So it's a overall web of control. And so if you don't know any of this, everything around you looks the same, like, uh, like the analogy of the flea in the bottle, right? Hmm. Where you put fleas in a bottle and you put a lid on it and they start, they try to jump out and they keep hitting the bottom of the lid. And after a while they stop trying so you can actually remove the lid and nobody right. will ever escape so yeah totally it's like an invisible prison and aldous huxley even calls it that right that we live in an invisible prison mm -hmm. so we live in this very similar time the rise of or the rise of the individual and uh, the free will well, why don't we just move then, I mean, as we you've been discussing how this was going on at the time of the Gutenberg Bible, then what started to happen, you know, I know around the 1850s, you start to see the growth of psychology, the Frankfurt School, but then at the same time, the Prussian education system, and again, just like you're talking about, you go back and you read what these guys are saying, and they're not even, they don't hide any of this. They're like, this is what we're doing. We're creating an education system in order to indoctrinate people into their nation state so that they will be good soldiers. You know, yeah. they'll be yeah. good workers. We don't need any people that know philosophy or any more higher mathematicians than we've already got. Or we don't need people writing poetry. We just need them to be able to go to work and do a good job. I mean, this is what they're saying. And then, you know, with the Frankfurt School, it's a, it's all about the psychological manipulation. These two things working in tandem, 
in the late 19th century, early 20th century to create this indoctrination system straight up. And it, okay, so it goes back even like it goes back even further to like most people don't understand this and probably surprised by it, but you know, the Napoleon defeat of the Prussian army is really what initiated all of this because hmm. Johann Gottlieb Fichte, um, after the Prussian army was defeated by Napoleon and, and Napoleon was, um, was in control of Berlin and it looked like the German nationality was actually going to go away. Like, so he, he, um, right. he writes the addresses to the German nation in 1806 and he calls for a resurgence of, uh, German nationalism. And so I've got a quote here from page 20 of these addresses where he admits the necessity to eliminate free will within the German student. So wow. he says free will in the pupil is the first mistake of the old system and the clique confession of its impotence and futility. The new education must consist in essentially this, that it completely destroys freedom of will in the soil, which it undertakes to cultivate and produces on the contrary, strict necessity in the decision of the will, the opposite being impossible. Such a will can henceforth be relied on with confidence and certainty. Right? So this is, in their writing and that book actually i was amazed that it's out there like you can you can go online and put in johan gottlieb fichte addresses to the german nation and you will find it in pdf form i read that a year and a half ago and i was like blown away that like you say they just they admit it and so this is where i don't have any patience for people that call me a conspiracy theorist i'm a i really consider myself a historian now yeah, that's that's just what I was about to say. I mean, they you know they call this conspiracy theory, and you can't get you know it's like no, just look. I mean, this stuff is all out there. If you go to the primary source material, which they're not going to teach you in high school, you know, but if you find it, if you look for it yourself, it's right in front of your face. They're not they're not pulling any punches. They're telling you exactly what they're doing, uh, and then you get called a conspiracy theorist. It's like, I mean, you know, people are just they're. I guess people are just really afraid to figure out that they have had the wool pulled over their eyes. You know, they don't want to know. It's easier to just stay in denial and go on with their life. Like you said, they're busy. They got to pay their bills. They got to go to work. They don't want to think about. Yeah, they're invested. They're invested in this system being maintained. Mm -hmm. So it's like only when, like there's a lot more of us now, but. Uh, I used to stand alone a lot as a free thinker and, you know, and I, yeah. I'd be marginalized because I was just simply asking questions. So uh, I thought, honestly, Doug, that at some point when I found the primary citations and I was able to show people this, that it would actually <laughs> sort of, we would be able to see a shift in, in pers- uh, people's perspectives. But we actually don't. We see them digging their heels in even further refusing to even read things. Yeah. I, I've been through the exact same process, Dwayne. It's outrageous. Yeah. I've approached people. I found articles with the primary sources were solid and I've approached them and I've said, Hey, can you find a problem with my research? You know, please, if you, you know, if you think I'm a conspiracy theorist, can you find my, my problem here? What, what am I missing? Because this yeah. looks pretty straightforward. I think it's really well sourced. Uh, and even when you, when you confront people on that level, it's like all of their, well, and we'll get to the trivium at the end of our conversation as the solution to this, 
level of denial because that finally I was like, what's going on here? I was getting accused of having cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias. And I'm saying, but I don't have these things. I'm doing this research. I'm asking you to critique my research and you're just calling me names and you're the one who's got cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, then they're projecting onto me what's really going on with them. Right. So that's projection, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, so I call this like a, an arrogant ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know what? I've used the exact same phrase. Yeah. They don't know really, but they, they're blindly trusting what they've been told through the TV and they get arrogant about it. And we see that in the liberal movement. We see that all over the place right now. Mm-hmm. They, they don't let you talk. They'll put signs in front of people's cameras. They, they have whistles that they'll just blow. They actually don't engage in conversation. It's one of the things that they don't do. And so that is Fabian society. That's the, the cultural Marxist influence, right? That's post-Marxist. Right. Do not talk, do not engage, do not debate because they know that they will lose. It's more, it's critical theory, right? So Max Horkheimer, Adrian Adorno, these guys wrote critical theory. And basically all that is, is just criticize everything. Never really come up with any solutions. Just criticize Western society and Western values. I just, uh, I w- I'd like to be able to segue into the the foundations and how the foundations are up behind a lot of this. I, I did want to mention first, though, that these symptoms that you're talking about, you know, when you run into people like this, this is how you know that they've been indoctrinated. And yeah. this is by design, like the indoctrination is by design. When you're trying to have a logical conversation with someone and they can't approach you as a reasonable person, even if you have a disagreement, like I'm fine with people disagreeing with me and then then I want to question my perspective and I'd like to have a back and forth but when they break out of of that of that rational critical examination and suddenly they're just either calling you names or they're saying you need to listen to the authority figure I mean you know that's when you realize oh well this is a this is what happens to a human being when they've been indoctrinated through these social engineering techniques that we've already discussed um and, and that's what's going on. We live in a, in a population where the mass of people have been so indoctrinated that they are, they're, it's not that they're not capable of critical thinking, but they are in denial of the fact that they need to start to, uh, you know, use critical thinking to break out of this cage. Um, and, you know, I don't even know if they know what it looks like or what it feels like to actually engage in lo- logical thinking or, you know, trying to critically mm-hmm. think their way through situations especially if they're watching tv or mainstream like i had one person tell me i asked them where they get their news and they said i get my news from a wide variety of sources abc nbc cbs i was like wow (laughs) so we're all at different levels right well um so I want to go from here and I, and I wanted to segue into the conversation about the foundations and what the foundations are doing because this is really the hub. I mean, there really are, you know, I don't know if it's a handful, maybe a hundred, maybe a couple of hundred of these billionaires that are working together. And this foundation system is how they're funding all of these academics that are, you know, sure. the managers of this social engineering enterprise. But before we get into that, I want to discuss something with you that I think very few people understand because, you know, we're, we're sort of force-fed the left-right paradigm, and so it's the capitalists versus the socialists who are combating each other. But you've already alluded to the fact that 
so much of this is socialism. So then that starts. And then if the, if the elite, the billionaires through the foundations are, are implementing this socialism, this, this, these socialist ideas, well then, Hey, that breaks down the whole Marxist paradigm of the evil capitalist that the socialist has to fight against actually what you really see. And I think this is, you know, this is kind of a crux of the issue, and I hope more people can wake up to this, is that the elites believe 100% in scientific socialism. It's their goal to socially engineer a socialist state for all of us, because then they know, as we've discussed, that all of the resources and all of the knowledge bases will be centralized, and they're the ones that are going to be at the top of the pyramid in control of all of the knowledge and all of the resources and everything that the rest of us do. Um they're the ones who are going to eventually benefit the most. I, I just think so many people who promote socialism because they think that they're fighting the evil capitalist are un- unwittingly working for the very people that they think they're fighting against. And that's the greatest irony of the whole thing. Right. And they're working against their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And they have no idea. So that's like Antifa. We see that with Antifa, right? We see it with all kinds of things lately. It's like they're trying to fight off the fascists, but the fascists that they think are fascists aren't even that. It's themselves that are. You have that quote. Let me just say real quick. You have that quote from uh, the, the the Changing Images of Man. They describe their system as friendly fascism. They don't even. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, I guess to, cl- to clarify fascism, I think from the elite point of view, fascism, national socialism, it's another form of socialism. So. Sure. You know, I think that that's the thing. Like, people want to think of communism on the left, fascism on the right, when they think of right. the left-right paradigm. And it's just, that's not, that. yeah, they're both, they're both, they're both just different aspects, different methodologies to get to the same centralized control. The elite class will use communism if it works. They'll use fascism if that works faster. Uh, it's all the same to them, as long as they can convince the people to jump on board to the next utopian concept that'll centralize you know, the resources, the knowledge base, and the other things that we've discussed. Right. And so everything leads to communism. Even in Lenin's writings, he talks about how we have to go through socialism to get to communism. Mm-hmm. And so it's through the, the left-wing door of sentimentality that that socialism arrives. And so Lenin talked and Marx talks about a point where there's complete chaos and civil war and out of that comes utopia so i think what we're seeing now is at least the very the very beginnings of this societal chaos the the, the breakup of society you can call it armageddon or whatever you want to call it but i mean it, <laughs> to somebody educated you look around and it, you know you see all kinds of things and that um sort of lead one to think that this is just all part of their game plan too, to to um, confuse people and to create chaos, so that out of the chaos they can create order. Because sure. they don't want to let a bad crisis go to waste. So you know, this is how they do it. So the to me at this point, it's like if we could just all quickly read the trivium and understand it, it would all be mm-hmm. over within a week. But you know, it takes a bit. You know who Jordan Peterson is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he talks about the um, the well-developed individual being the greatest antidote to a tyrannical society, biology, or government, right? 
because if we aren't ignorant, if we're no longer ignorant, they cannot uh, pull the wool over our eyes. They cannot pull the same old tricks, and um, it is really the same old tricks. The same tricks that fooled my parents are fooling people my age. They just keep regurgitating it. It's pretty amazing that I'm. we're listening right now. I'm listening right now. Every once in a while, I throw on NPR just to see, you know, right. how how they're, they're manipulating saying. us. I mean, it's just like, and, and you're listening to the buildup to this thing that's happening in Syria. And I'm just saying to myself, I can't believe that they can do this again after Iraq, you know, when the, it was all about the weapons of mass destruction. And everybody even knows that now that was all fake. And now they're listening to these chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and it's like, here we go again, because people will not apply their critical thinking. They're assuming that these journalists, again, these authority figures, are are participating in the critical thinking for them before they make these articles or these, you know, these stories on the news, and they're not understanding that the you know the financing, the people who are financing these news articles are wanting to, you know, they're they're fooling you. They're hiring these people to create a narrative. It's not a true narrative. It's just the narrative that they're getting paid to create. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. That's, I totally agree with that. Well, let's, um, let's, I, I want to kind of dwell again on this, the, the, um, the actual evidence that we have that the elite class are promoting socialism and communism, because again, this is just such confusing to so many people. You know, people talk about the Koch brothers as, as these, you know, libertarians who are, you know, or the, you know, the elite class as the capitalist class. And it's just, you have a quote in one of your articles about David Rockefeller talking about Chinese communism and saying yeah. that Mao instituted one of the best systems in the history of mankind, right. and it's this great experiment, and you know we're going to use it over here. Um, and then will you get into some of the stuff about like the Reese Commission? Yeah, that's actually where I was going to just start right now. Okay, perfect. Just going to comment on the Reese Committee because uh, the Reese Committee started in the fifties. I mean, there was other investigations into Rockefeller and the foundations. It's not just Rockefeller, but Carnegie mm -hmm. uh, into their into their behaviors, into how they treated their workers, right? So, I um, can't remember what that one was called. But uh, early in the 1900s, actually, it was headed by McKinley. McKinley oh, started wow. an investigation into them. And a year after he started that investigation, he was assassinated. So you can make right. assumptions out there. I have never gone down that road, but hey, you know, anything's possible in my eyes with these guys. Yeah, for sure. And so in the 50s, there was two or three investigations. They all kind of happened at the same time. You had the Cox Committee com uh, that investigated allegations of socialist um, infiltration into the foundations. Then right on its heels in 53 or 54, you had the Reese Committee. So you have B. Carroll Reese. And so what, what happens there is that B. Carroll Reese decides that the Cox committee that came before was too broad of an investigation mm -hmm. and they weren't able to really pinpoint a lot of evidence. And I'm not sure why that actually died, but um, Carol B. Reese decides to focus in on the social sciences in universities. And that's where he finds this huge movement working through social sciences uh, to infiltrate 
education and Western values and traditions through the foundations. Um, so we see uh, the creation of textbooks, um, Building America, I think it was called. But So you have a bunch of these subsidiaries, interlocks, right? So if anybody wants to read it all about this, Renee Wormser put out a book called The Foundations, Their Power and Influence. And so Renee Wormser was chief counsel in the Reese Committee investigations. And so he wrote a book and detailing all of it, even the inside stuff at the end about mm -hmm. the story of the Reese Committee and how it was actually, it was um, infiltrated by uh, politicians and leveraged and threatened and in the end, well, because of lack of funding, they had to actually conclude that investigation. But they came to the same conclusions as the Cox Committee. So um, uh, infiltration of the social sciences, so you through the humanities, um, and these interlocking subsidiaries that uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie and the larger foundations are funneling money to into projects. So the Institute of Pacific Relations mm -hmm. or the American Council on Education, the National Education Association, uh, the League for Industrial Democracy, which I think actually is the American version of the Fabian Society. Mm -hmm. So the Progressive Education Association, the John Dewey Society, the National Council on uh, Parent Education and the American Youth Association, these were all, once they started looking into it, totally infiltrated with socialist communists. And it was their goal to infiltrate education and instill socialist uh, ideals into the minds of elementary students and high school students. So there was one called the Dilworth Committee. And so that's where they found um, that they'd actually, there was, they found 50 authors that were working on these textbooks and they were all, um, disseminated in California where you are. So mm -hmm. this is in the fifties. And so it was totally, uh, it, they totally permeated these, uh, high school textbooks with socialist ideals. the Dilworth Committee and the um, Reese Committee, they all determined in the end to have these canceled, even even the California state legislature or the government. And so they found that 50 of the people, that 50 of the authors that were writing these things were socialist communists, including Sidney and Beatrice Webb, the founders of the Fabian Society, were authors of these books. Hmm. And so... That's one of those moments where I was reading, I just about threw the book across the room, right? Yeah. That's definitive evidence of not only just socialism, but the, the people that were creating it. Well, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, it all goes back to this notion of this scientific socialism, this application of science. You know, it, it's just, it's to me, it's using science as an excuse to 
be uh, you know a dominant personality to, to dominate to control other people's free will instead of allowing right. them to make choices for themselves you're you're literally saying you're too stupid to make choices for yourselves and you know i am a scientist and i have shown through my you know incredible wisdom that you should be living your life this way and so i'm going to influence you and i'm going to impose my will on you and i'm going to force you to do it and they found these very subversive ways to do that where we can't even we don't even realize that that's what's going on it's uh, it's amazing yeah. so they legitimized social sciences they made them a legit science right mm -hmm. which they really aren't they're not really a, a true science but in the same way they did psychology they le they legitimized psychology as a legitimate science when mm -hmm. it's it's not really either and i even remember when i was a kid you know we didn't really consider psychology as a as a serious science because there's not really ways that you can measure people's aptitudes or whether they're totally. insane or not right it's not like right. it's not like the real true sciences so um yeah i mean i'll i'll read you another quote from renee worms or that's out of foundations his foundations book and he's talking about these interlocks so just as there's been interlocks in a concentration of power in education in social science research in domestic areas there's been a similar combination in the field of foreign policy mm -hmm. so now we start to see what this is is um it's the same pattern being done over and over so you have rockefeller and the general education board in 1902 being formed and then you have on a on a on a county and state level, you have the manipulation of officials to sort of impose education. So that's on a smaller scale, right? The county scale. But then mm -hmm. you see it getting larger with the state, but it's the same techniques that they're using. And then the, on the federal level, they infiltrate uh, the federal government. And then so like this quote, they then move past the federal government and start um, imposing the same scheme on the uh, international playing field. So that's where you get the introduction of the UN and guess who donated the land for that was Rockefeller, right? Yep, sure. So the major components of the concentration of internationalism, Carnegie Corporation, Carnegie Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Rockefeller Foundation, even the Rhodes Scholarship. So mm -hmm. we're talking about Cecil Rhodes uh, and the Ford Foundation. They all they all fund this similar scheme that grows throughout the century to the point where in the 40s we have the creation of the United Nations. And then underneath the United Nations, acting just like the Rockefeller Foundation, it has six or seven subsidiaries in which it starts to impose things on a, on a um, domestic level or international level, but they then can go into individual specific areas and start to infiltrate and to start to impose the exact same sort of social engineering techniques, right? You know, one of the, one of the things that really interests me about this, I'm thinking, um, and maybe you can speak to this in a second, about uh, Norman Dodd, who also came out of the Reese Committee, and you quoted him a couple of times in some of your books. But I mean, again, going back to this whole notion that those of us who are seeing through 
these techniques and saying, hey, you know, individuals have the right to make choices for themselves and then culture should evolve out of that. We shouldn't be in, shouldn't be the other way around where a handful of people impose our culture on top of us because they claim that they've scientifically created it or whatever. Um, and then you get called a conspiracy theorist for, for believing this, which seems to me to just be common sense. Everyone should, you know, I mean, even animals don't like to live in cages, right? No, exactly. <laughs> and, and uh, and then you cite things like the these congressional committees. I mean, I had somebody tell me one time, you know, talking about this and like, well, what kind of sources do you use? And I said, well, what do you think about congressional committees? <laughs> and they were like, well, I guess that's about as good as it gets. And it's like, right? I yeah. mean, a congressional committee is a good source. And this is where, where you know, you're getting a lot of this information and you look at it. But what's amazing is, I think, again, I just did a recent interview about... Uh, the election process here in the United States, there was a Conyers committee, Conyers commission a few years ago to study the 2004 election. Of course, they found rampant fraud. Um, and just like the Reese committee found all of this, you know, stuff going on behind the scenes in these foundations. Um, and, and then the, uh, you know, the mainstream media who is owned by these same handful of very rich people, then they don't, you know, they, they act like it didn't happen, and they just ignore it, and then you get called a conspiracy theorist, which is, you know, the term, of course, is promoted by the mainstream narrative, um, and they just cover it up. Even when they get busted by Congress, they, it, they cover it up. It's outrageous. So two things about that is the only thing better than a congressional record as a, as a source is, is their own writings, their own books. Right, right. And, right, so... And then so when they call you a conspiracy theorist or they laugh at you, that's a fallacy. That's the appeal to ridicule, which I get into with the trivium. Yeah. Right. So this is what's empowering about it is that it starts to give you like I call it um, intellectual jujitsu because you're able to now disseminate or to figure out what is worth worrying about, what is worth trying to figure out and what you can just totally discard as distraction because that's really what fallacies are. And so when you watch mainstream media and so after you know what fallacies are and you start watching the mainstream media, it's just one fallacy after the other. Right. So, yeah. That, yeah. So what, what happens as a natural result is people turn off their TV because they, you know, as much as right. uh, animals don't want to be living in cages, humans don't want to be lied to. Yeah, so totally. That's what happened to me. And so we are, it's interesting to me because we are that close to uh, a complete overall shift. We are, it's just a, a push of the button away, right? All mm -hmm. we need to do is just turn off the TV and that would actually, probably just that, that act alone would be as significant as Gutenberg's, the introduction of Gutenberg's press. Because we right. would turn off the main source of lies. Will you just discuss really quickly those quotes by Norman Dodd and his uh, actual conversations with the head of these foundations where they were talking about how the goal of the foundation is to, I mean, one of the quotes is to mold the United States with the Soviet Union under one yeah. socialist communist system. I mean, again, just because I think it's so difficult for people to wrap their minds around the, that the evil capitalist is actually a socialist. Like, this is yeah. how they, they are fooling you. This is where the left-right paradigm is just... You know, it's not an accurate depiction of what's actually happening. If you're participating in it because you think you're, you know, if I vote for a Democrat, I get what I want. Or if I vote for a Republican or, you know, 
No, I mean, you, you know, both of those are just sheep being being led to slaughter and this, you know, this larger picture of social engineering towards this centralization uh, is what's actually going on. Okay, so, so Norman Dodd, in his interviews with Rowan Gaither and another one, I'm not sure, I know that it was with the Ford Foundation and with the mm -hmm. Carnegie Endowment for World Peace, so... Um, they admitted to him that they're like, so the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace, they admitted that their main goal was to get us into war, at, right. into the First <laughs> World War. So if that's not contradictory, I don't know what else is. Yeah, war is one of these great upheavals that allow them then to manipulate for social change because... You yeah. know, obviously, it's so disruptive to the culture and to what's going on. And then again, you're looking at this problem, reaction, solution. They create yeah. a war. Of course, yeah. these guys are making big bucks on the war. And then after the war, that they're, they're able to rebuild in in their image. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, problem, reaction, solution. It's Hegelian. It's out of out of chaos comes order. Right. So they they use these things to establish um, their authority, and then they implement whatever world that they want after that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, their goal was to, to combine the Soviet Union with the United States. And so that was an interview that uh, Norman Dodd did, I don't know when, in the 80s. I think he's passed away now. But, yeah, they're mm -hmm. very important interviews because he was, uh, he was the lead researcher for the Reese Committee. Right. Yeah, so he got all the inside skinny, even the stuff that they wouldn't print in the press or in the yeah. mainstream narrative, and then all of the stuff that they covered up, even what what you know they did discover uh, in the committee. Yeah. So yeah, we're looking at definitely maybe an hour, ten minutes into the interview, and I really want to get on to the solution because now, if you're if you've been listening this long, you're depressed enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we do offer a solution, and so this yeah. is. Really, what I have focused literally my life on now, because I I started re I was introduced to the Trivium through Richard Grove, Tragedy and Hope Community. I encourage everybody to go there. Same with Jan Urban at Gnostic Media. Mm -hmm. um, some of the research there is just amazing, and they're actually cutting edge, right? Like they're they're right at the the tip of the spear as far as uh, the latest research being done. So it was there that I. I've stumbled into the Trivium, to be honest. I probably scrolled past it a few times before I really understood what it was. And as soon as I understood what the Trivium was, I, I dedicated my life to making sure that people understand what it is. I introduce people to it all the time. So there's the, this is Sister Miriam Joseph's version. If you can see that. Mm -hmm. But for me right now, like I've, I own a couple different versions. And cool. there's, there is several different versions, and each of them have their own advantages and, all, and their own disadvantages. But I found that Sister Miriam Joseph's Trivium, her version of it, is the most comprehensive. Okay, so I'm just going to start at the beginning with the Trivium because I'm not sure how many people will actually know what it is. Yeah, let's do it. Start, start with the basics. Okay, so essentially the Trivium is the basis upon which uh, a master's degree in the liberal arts is. So it's, it's called the Trivium because it's made up of three sources of knowledge, in Latin meaning three sources or three roads, 
and these three sources being grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So within grammar, we have the art of combining symbols, and it's concerned with the thing, the thing as it is symbolized. So logic is the art of thinking, and it's concerned with the thing as it is known, while rhetoric is the art of communication and is concerned with the thing as it is communicated. So um, the one thing that I will premise here is that Sister Miriam Joseph's version does actually invert logic and grammar. So in my opinion, I prefer to, in the, in the, in, um, as in grammar, logic, rhetoric, she's got it logic, grammar, and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So she put logic prior to grammar. Um, so in my mind, it, it goes grammar, logic, rhetoric, because we we first must know how to properly read and write before we can properly form our thoughts and ideas into an orderly form of communication, which is what rhetoric is, right? So, right. And this was the foundation, basically, of, of what people call a classical education, which was yeah. predominantly the way human beings were educated in the West, at least in, in, in right. our culture, for, you know, hundreds of years until until the the onset of this new sort of foundation-based centralized right. education system that's been around for maybe 120 years. But before yeah. that, everybody was doing the trivium. Yeah, right from the beginning. So this comes from the origins of Western civilization. This is what, what Aristotle and Socrates and Plato all talked about, right? Mm -hmm. And so the trivium is a great example of where they took out they took the, the trivium out of education. So they, around the turn of the century, somewhere between 1850 and 1900, they took out Greek, Latin, and imposed into education this watered-down, simplistic model that we have now, where we only learn things for an hour. Every subject is separated by bells and whistles, mm -hmm. right? Because they knew that the trivium actually stood opposed to centralization or um, anti-individuality or anti-free will because the trivium actually um, teaches the power of individuality. It's totally opposite. Right. Yeah, which the function of education, right, you would think. Right, it should be. <laughs> I mean, this is what I mean about, I see it over and over again, that where the, you know, the upper classes will weaponize something, something that, you know, is of great benefit to mankind, and they take it and they weaponize it, and then they use it against us. Uh, education is just, of course, a classic example of that. So, the trivium, so um, this is a good analogy. Um, firstly, we we apply phonetics, which prescribes how to combine sounds so as to form spoken words correctly. Spelling, or how to combine letters so as to form words correctly. And then grammar is so we can form sentences correctly. Rhetoric, so we can combine those sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into a composition. Having unity, coherence, and the desired emphasis, as well as clarity, force, and beauty. So the rhetoric is really where you are able to establish your own style. Um, and finally, logic gives us the ability to form all of these into a general concepts, into judgments, and, and those judgments into syllogisms or chains of reasoning. And 
finally the truth. Right, so this is this is critical. Um, you sort of build on your knowledge. It's just like when, if you were to learn how to write properly, right? You have to learn how to use words and then how to form them into sentences, and then form those sentences into uh, comprehensible paragraphs, and then the paragraphs into a total um, work or composition. So. The trivia method helps to remove all contradictions and ambiguity from our language and helps people not only better understanding the viewpoints of others, but is immensely effective in identifying falsehoods or fallacies that permeate right. our lives and society in general. Well, I mean, this is just it. This is the tool that humans can use, people can use if they're educated in this way. It's a tool to uh, not be deceived or manipulated by okay. these social engineers. I mean, you can just start to see if you have a, a, a this capacity and this tool set, this skill set that you can learn, then you apply it. It's just like, I mean, it reminds me a lot of the scientific method. If the scientific method was actually used correctly hey, and not sure. also weaponized in this way for corporate profits and, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and then just, you know, the way that, that, that technology is sort of foisted upon us instead of, again, allowing us to choose for ourselves what technologies we want or allow individuals to invent things and, and not the corporation. I mean, again, everything is being centralized, but, um, you know, the Trivium gives us this tool of critical thinking and analysis that allows us to, to at least always be working towards a more refined and truth-oriented understanding of the world around us, and, and as such, then, the lies and the manipulations and the deceit which the you know elite class or the upper class are relying on in order to maintain their power over us sure. uh, would just fall away because if everybody could wake up you know and see what they're actually doing then they wouldn't have any power anymore and so this trivium serves us in our personal lives in that uh, um, when we understand that most conflict or argument originate in the definition of terms. So while people may be debating over some particular topic or matter and may feel as though they're arguing over the same thing, most oftentimes when you ask each to define what the particular topic means to them, you realize that they are in fact arguing something completely different. Mm -hmm. So this explains why, um, especially those possessed by ideologies, never come to terms or a resolution because they are simply unable to find logical common ground, which is the first step towards conflict resolution, finding a building upon commonality, right? Right. Uh, find several incredible tools that can be used to come to a determination of the truth. Uh, so we have the relation of propositions, the syllogism, some of these people might have heard of the square of opposition, the logical and illogical fallacies, or inductive and So maybe we should talk about logical fallacies. I, I mean, I get, again, I just want to, uh, <laughs> to reinforce that it's amazing that the, the quote-unquote, the people that are called conspiracy theorists, you know, this this group of people that are doing this kind of research are the ones that are actually, I mean, we're so interested in discussing the truth. And, and you know, you, you said those words, ignorance and arrogance early on, because I find that most people, 
that I interview certainly and, and myself, I I strive for this is is to be humbled sure. in the face of the search yeah. for the truth, where you realize how difficult it is. Hey, if you have another idea than I do, please let's discuss it. Let's work towards a sensible form of conflict resolution. If we, yeah. you know, um, and it is amazing that the the indoctrinated or those who are con- are afflicted with, as you say, ideologies, you know, they can't, they don't want to go there. They can't confront it. But the logical, um, the logical fallacies are one of the greatest ways to, to be able to overcome this. So an understanding of how these logical fallacies work then allow you to understand where people are getting tripped up and why they're getting tripped up. Right. Um, and if you can hold yourself to them, you'll prevent yourself from getting tripped up as well. They're pretty important to understand. Right. So let me add here, because it's perfect to what you just said, what Socrates mm-hmm. says in the, in the Trivium. I think it's another book he has, but they use it in the Trivium. So you were talking about how you need to be humble and help each other to find resolution or to find the truth, right? So Socrates says, what sort of man am I? I am one of those who would be glad to be refuted when saying a thing that is untrue. Glad also to refute mm-hmm. another if he said something inexact. Not less glad to be refuted than to do it, since I deem it the greater blessing in proportion as it is a greater good to be released from that which is the greatest evil than to release another from it. So that's what he's talking about there too. But when you engage right. with the left, you know, you know what it is? It's, um, they're not concerned with the truth. They're concerned with being right. So the truth has nothing to do with right or wrong. But as humans, we are stuck in this paradigm where we, we, we need to be right or there's a fear of being wrong. And those are our motivating factors when the truth, in fact, there's nothing of those things. Those are only human emotions or conditions right right when somebody realizes that and they're able to step away and this is probably why a a philosophical approach is so important because that's what a philosopher does he's a spectator and he watches things and removes ideologies removes beliefs removes stereotypes biases prejudices right and is only concerned Mm -hmm. with the truth the love of the truth it is so funny how many people are like I, you know, not capable of taking critique of their thoughts without accepting it or, or taking it upon themselves as a personal attack, yeah. Yeah. Y- you know, and I guess that's where the ego comes in and people want to be right. And, but I also think that, you know, again, the function of the education is to break this down and to, so that all of us are working towards the truth, which means that we all also have to be capable of understanding when we're wrong and saying, oh, okay, great. Thanks for helping me out. I I was mistaken. You know, it doesn't have to be a personal attack. It doesn't have to be felt that way or taken that way. I mean, if we're if we're all working together to make a better life for everyone here, uh, this is just the path forward. I mean, it's the way it's the way we become better people. Sure, but society doesn't teach us that, right? It's society Mm -hmm. teaches us that it's embarrassing to be wrong or it's embarrassing to be corrected. Which, when in fact, it's the exact opposite. I mean. You only succeed through a series of failures, right? right? You never try the first time and make anything, even right, like all the way back to riding a bike or walking, man, you, you fall or whatever, how many ever times, and then you finally get a, a grasp of it. I mean, we're humans, we're fallible, and we make mistakes. And I think that it's important for us to understand that and to be humble so that, and to accept 
uh, when somebody says, well, that's inaccurate and here's why, and they actually provide facts. Like I'll say, I can easily be persuaded with facts and evidence. You can persuade me to yeah. anything if you give me empirical evidence and fact. Right? So um, I just want to talk a little bit about fallacies before we go. Yeah, Do we please. have time? Let's do it. Mm -hmm. okay, so, yeah, like probably another 10 minutes okay, or so. Great. That's probably perfect. So some people, well, I would say that most people are familiar with like the ad hominem attack or the red herring or the straw man fallacy. Mm. But like there's dozens of others. And um, so the purpose of a fallacy is to distract from the main topic or viewpoint, right? By appealing to people's irrational emotions of so fear, hate, or even compassion. So you see that with uh, the Syrian refugees. They had the little boy on the beach with the red shirt. I mean, it's an image that's ingrained into all of us, but that actually instigated the Syrian refugee crisis. It was a, and I'm telling you, it was, uh, it was, it was put there on purpose to do just that, to play on our compassions because I mean, how can you, I mean, you'd have to be really cold hearted not to really care about, yeah. you know, when you're presented with that, but it's not, they're not presenting you with the truth there. Right. So in so far as an argument is fallacious, it's not logical. So as logic is concerned with the truth, it is incidentally concerned with the negation of truth, namely errors, falsity, and fallacy. So when you start removing contradictions and you start to, you have the tools through the trivium to find out what is inaccurate about what somebody's saying, you can start to remove them. And once you've removed enough, the truth starts to come into picture, right? So mm -hmm. a fallacy is a violation of logical principle disguised under an appearance of validity. It's an error in process. So falsity is an error in fact. Um, uh, fallacy arises from erroneous relation of propositions. So we didn't actually get into it, but that's where syllogisms, right? Or if you wanted a real life example, it's like the Syrian bombing, right? That's a proposition that um, Assad is committing horrible, heinous acts on innocent civilians, that's actually a proposition. So you can actually test that proposition to see its accuracy and its validity through a syllogism. But we don't have time for that, so we'll just talk about fallacies. So to discover a fallacy is to discover the reason why the mind was deceived into regarding error as truth. So mm -hmm. to classify fallacies is to attempt to find common ground for such deception. But a given argument may be fallacious for more reasons than one, and hence it may exemplify more than one fallacy. So um, classification of fallacies is neither exhaustive nor mutually exclusive. So people can use multiple fallacies at the same time. So one of the more popular ones is the post hoc ergo propter hoc. So that would be like event A occurred, then event B occurred, therefore event A um, caused event B. So that's like a jump in, in um, it's like a, I don't know what you'd call it in layman's terms. It's a jump in conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. it's, um, you're not, you're moving on to the next step without actually verifying or uh, making certain of 
from where it came from. So another one's the argumentum ad auctoritatum, um, or the argument from authority. So this is a fallacious argument in which a claimed authority's support is used as evidence for an argument's conclusion without facts. So we see this all the time. And talk yeah. about this. Yeah, that one's a big one. About just believing authority or believing something is true just because an authority told us so. So examples of this is like the weapons of mass destruction back in 2003. Mm -hmm. We were asked to believe that, um, again, just like Assad, these patterns start coming up, right? It's the same thing over and over um, where, you know, Colin Powell holds up a little vial of anthrax and we're off to war. But who knows what's in that container, right? There's no empirical totally. evidence actually saying that we should go, but... So we, here we are in a war 15 years later that is yet to end on um, on a on an accusation that Saddam Hussein was using weapons of mass destruction that we've yet to find. So if if we all were familiar with the argument of matter authoritatum back then and now especially right with Assad. Yeah, I mean, they're basically using the same argument again. Sorry? They're basically using the same argument again, you know? <laughs> oh, Assad's using chemical weapons. Well, where are the facts, you know? Yeah, and that, so they did that in 2013, and they did it again once Trump was in power. They did it just months ago. And both of those instances were eventually proven to be false or fallacious. They were, they were, um, they were actually error in fact, right? Right. So one of the things that I go ahead. Well, one of the things that I've been really focusing on lately, because I'll listen, like if I listen to the NPR piece or if I read something from the mainstream media, is that a lot of times they don't omit. Well, they they will omit certain facts, but they won't lie. Like they're not lying outright. They 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 create what I certainly would call a false narrative by mostly by omitting facts, by cherry-picking a few facts, and then, um, I, you know, and then creating a narrative around the facts that work. And sometimes they'll even, um, God, I was listening to something yesterday about, it was about Assad, and it was like they started off by saying, oh, you know, this is a, a reported chemical weapons attack. And then 30 seconds later, they said, well, here's a guy who just bombed his, you know, his people with chemical weapons. And it was even like 30 seconds before in their own newscast, they admitted that it was, you know, reported but not proven. Right. And yet then they're just reinforcing this feeling and this narrative that they're creating that, well, of course, it's obvious, you know, that he must have gassed his own people with chemical weapons. Right. And these are, this is what happens. You can actually, by using logical fallacies, I think this is my point in this, you can create a false narrative, even with, only, with using real facts. You don't have to lie necessarily. You just have to kind of twist, twist reality. Well, I would say that the omission of, of facts is lying. It's a form of lying, right? Because they are... Yeah, fair enough, fair they enough. They are removing certain facts that counter their narrative that they're trying to establish. So that comes from a... 
a nefarious place in one's mind when you start manipulating the facts. Sure. And so then the other thing that you mentioned there is in their their own story, they even they counter their own headline. And so we see that in newspapers all the time. We will see that online. You go to Washington Post, whether it's actual physical newspaper or the one online, it'll have this sensational headline. And it'll say something about lately about Trump, right? But then you start reading mm -hmm. into the, the article and it's two or three paragraphs in where they say, actually, we don't really have any evidence to, you know, verify this. Right. So it's, you start to see that this is, uh, this is a real, it's a real dangerous game because they're playing on people's ignorances. And so then you have people, like you say, that they come up to you and they'll say this, they'll actually repeat the headline. So you know that they, yeah. they've read the headline walking by on the street or they've just sort of clickbaited it and they, they now use that as a narrative against anybody's argument when now you actually are more knowledgeable than them because you understand that they actually haven't read the article. Right. Right. So this where the left starts getting set, starts calling you names, right? Or the appeal to ridicule, which is the last fallacy I actually want to touch on if we have time. Yeah, sure. I was going to mention one other one other technique. I don't know if it can be related into the logical fallacies, but it's the it's just the overabundance of information too. I mean, when the same thing is repeated a hundred times, yeah. then um, that's when people really start to believe it. And it's because I know you know I do research and. I'm looking for a specific article or an angle that I know was there in the independent media somewhere that I read a while back, and I want to find that article. And I have to wade through right. 150 articles from the corporate press saying the same thing, almost entirely all of them from the same, say, AP or Reuters source. And if you, you know, which the source that I've already double checked and found out that. It may well be like what you're saying, like the facts aren't even there or within the source article is like, well, we don't really know, but this is what we're going to say anyway. Right. And then it get, just gets repeated over and over again. I mean, this is the meme warfare yep. that we were talking about earlier. Yep. Okay, so that's that that was established in the 40s. Just as the onset of television was coming in, you had these cultural Marxists, right? Paul F. Lazarsfeld and Max Horkheimer. Uh, Lazarsfeld ran the Princeton Radio Research Project where they were... They were actually doing the same things that they are today. They, they had a, a, an, an audience analyzer. I can't remember what it's called, but they, they actually started compiling statistics on what people like and what people don't like, when they turned the radio off, when they turned it back on, just the same as we see Facebook doing, collecting likes, right? And with the Cambridge Analytica right. story. So this has been going sure. on for a long time. And so... Lazarsfeld called it the narcoticizing dysfunction. It was a, huh. just a deluge of information, of contradictory information. So this is, this is also the difference between um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984. In George Orwell's 1984, history and information went down the memory hole, where in uh, Brave New World, information was just buried. So mm -hmm. this is a, so it's an actual premeditated plan. So what you're talking about, it goes back to the 40s, and that actually can be found online too. The PDF for Paul F. Lazarsfeld is called Mass Communication. 
I can't remember the total name of it, but if you put in Paul F. Lazarsfeld and put in Mass Communication, you can read that book too, and it is amazing. And that's right out of the horse's mouth too. Like he is a bona fide cultural Marxist or a postmodernist, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the appeal to ridicule. I'll just quickly go okay. because this is an important one for people to understand. And then I'll, I've got two paragraphs. The final one's kind of a conclusion. So the appeal to ridicule is often found in the form of comparing a nuanced circumstance or argument to a laughably commonplace occurrence or to some other irrelevancy on the basis of comedic timing, wordplay, or making an opponent and their argument the object of a joke. So this is where you get uh, like instead of saying conspiracy theory to you or I, they might just laugh you off and wave their hand. And to them, that's mm -hmm. enough to walk away and, and sleep at night. That to them is evidence, right? right? That your, your propositions or what your argument um, doesn't even need considering. So you see that all the time. They, they, they'll call you names. It's kind of like a form of the ad hominem as well right but it's even less mm. so and i get it all the time on twitter or at least i used to when i used to do my twitter battles but um i used to get it where they, they would just give you a uh uh one of the happy the laughing emoticons with the tears coming out they would just give you that right you could give primary citations and a picture of the book and you could give the author you could give them a picture of the author writing the book and they'll give you a emoticon with tears coming out and they've won the argument yeah. <laughs> so, um, finally, probably the last thing I I want to say to you, Doug, is and urge your your viewers and whoever ends up seeing this, and this is what I say to everybody: it's search out the trivium, familiar familiarize yourself with at least the fallacies. It's chapter nine. It's a quick read, um, and so you'll be able to use them and. And you'll be able to detect when politicians are using it, when guys like Jimmy Kimmel are using it, right? When mainstream media is using it, you'll be able to see these things. And once you reach chapter nine of the Tribune, you they will start jumping out at you. You just start seeing the things that you used to fall for, right? So mm -hmm. I'm a perfect example. Like I was actually an Obama supporter in 2008. But once I saw that he was just like the rest, I started actually starting to research. And... So we're talking about political discourse or Asopian language, right? You're able to see through that stuff. And like I said earlier, it's like a intellectual jujitsu self-defense. So I encourage everybody to go out there, find the trivium. You can find the Sister Miriam Joseph's version online, the PDF form. You can find it. It's, it's you know, it's a little bit of a tough read to begin with, but if you go directly to chapter nine, I think that um, it's a life-changing experience. You really you really start to see how much you're being lied to. Right. Yeah, I mean, living and thinking critically is a matter of discipline, but if you are disciplined enough to follow that path, uh, you know, I think it's worth it. I try to do my best, and uh, it opens up doors to a whole new reality for yourself, and it is a form of self-empowerment. You know, you're no longer as easily manipulated. You can't be pushed around. Uh, you develop your own 
uh, view of things. And, and it is, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, I tell you, I think, I, I think that I'll be continuing to, to push it on this show sure. and hope that everybody can make the shift back over to where this is the foundation of our culture and that all individuals are familiar with this type yeah. of, of lifelong path, you know, towards, towards holding your feet to the fire and, and really seeking, you know, what's really going on so that we just can't be manipulated. I mean, heck, right now I feel like we're on our way to a war with sure. Russia. I mean, it looks like the powers that be are wanting, you know, the Syria thing to explode into Russia and China and Syria and Iran against NATO. I mean, it's just a disaster. And I just, it almost makes me want to pull my hair out because the, you know, people here in the United States and in the, in Europe, in the Western world, I mean, they're just allowing themselves to get fooled into this. I mean, we, we shouldn't be standing for this. This is crazy. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. It's the same patterns happening over and over. Yeah. So we just need people. You know, I have faith in humanity. I do. At some days, it's like, wow, they've just orchestrated this whole thing so so genius, like that it it can be discouraging. But I really do feel like at the end of the day, when it all comes down, all the cards are pushed to the middle. Humanity is going to survive, and it's going to be through enlightenment and through understanding our surroundings and seeing ourselves as we truly are, not mere reflections. Yeah, and the trivium is certainly one path to kind of wake us up out of this, uh, this manipulation and this, uh, this control on this really fundamental level. I mean, the, the level of our education, of our kids' education, and, you know, yeah. the, it's like the strength of our families, our, our capacity for making choices for ourselves. I mean... I think in a real way, this has been taken from us. And so the Trivium offers one path to getting that back. I mean, it's every human being's birthright. And uh, so I hope the people that are listening to this can really take that to heart, maybe think about picking up a copy and learning about what they can do to start walking down this path and having the discipline to think in the way that brings you closer to the truth and, and the way that, that prevents you from being so easily deceived. Right. So if anybody has any questions or... You know, they want to contact me. You can find me at Trivium Method on Twitter, but you can also find me at Trivium Method at uh, BitChute on BitChute or Steemit at Minds.com. Uh, you can find me under my real name, Dwayne Hayes, at, on Facebook. So I, I encourage everybody to sort of bring whatever information they have, um, anything that they can add to this conversation, come find me and uh, let's start building a community of like-minded people that read the trivium i think it's the key do you want to mention the blog the website as well yeah from out of the haze i think you put you suggested the address at the beginning that's where i do my blogs um so what i'm doing there is i'm taking these books that are important for people to read but i know that people don't have a lot of time in their day to read a 700 page book or a 1300 page book so I'm, I am reading these books and then boiling them down into a 15 to 20 minute read on like a set, kind of a book review uh, so mm -hmm. that people can walk away after 15 to 20 minutes of a quick blog read and really start to see the world like I am or anybody that reads these books do. So you can find me at, it's a Wix site and it's uh, from out of the haze. And so I have a new one coming out on Brave New World. And so 
I started that Brave New World. It should be out in the next couple of days. But I actually had to read the Communist Manifesto, and I had to learn more history of the Fabian Society. And then I also found through my research that there is Brave New World Revisited that Aldous Huxley wrote. And so he talked about the conclusions that he had in that book. So in the next few days, I hope to put that out. All right, great. Yeah, and I definitely recommend the articles. They are succinct and they're short, but they're really to the point, especially when it comes to the the social engineering, the history of the foundations. I mean, it's all there. So uh, I hope people do check it out. That's um, that's at DwayneHayes28.Wixsite.com for anybody that wants to, to look at that. And um, I also highly recommend people check out the Trivium and think about, uh, you know, think about how it works because it is a tool that we should be using very much, again, like the scientific method that we can be using to analyze our surroundings that uh, opens us up to walking a path towards the truth and away from the deceit and manipulation that's become so common. So sure. uh, please do that. And I do want to remind my audience as well that uh, if you like what you're listening to here on The Shift, then I would appreciate it if you think about becoming a patron. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. You can check out my news feed on Facebook. That's The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty and find my archives and any other information about the show available on my website at theshiftnow.com. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Doug. Yeah, thanks so much yeah for I really me. appreciate the conversation.